man, isn't that thunder cool? Can you feel that when it goes? I like that. Well, welcome to you, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you in worship this morning. We are in the middle of a learning series, a worship series that we started a few weeks ago on the most infamous book in the Christian Bible, the book of Revelation, right? And if you are new here today, or if you missed any of the past couple of weeks, let me just do a quick review with you of what we've covered so far, and then kind of get into today's stuff. One of the most important things that we've been learning together as a community reading this book is to read Revelation as what it was, which is a letter. It was a letter originally written to seven real-life ancient Christian communities in the circumstances of their lives. Revelation happened when, when God gave a vision, when the living Lord Jesus appeared to an ancient Christian man named John. We call him John of Patmos because he was exiled, persecuted for his faith, and exiled to an island in the Mediterranean called Patmos. Anybody want to sign up for that kind of persecution, right? Mediterranean island, right? Exile, that's tough, right? He was exiled to this Mediterranean island called Patmos, and while he was there, Jesus appeared to him, gave him a vision, and said, write this down and send it to these seven churches, these seven communities of ancient Christians in cities that, are, that would be located in what is now modern-day Turkey, east, western Turkey. And they were, they were in cities called Smyrna and Ephesus and Laodicea, and one called Philadelphia, which is not in Pennsylvania, but in ancient, well, ancient Asia. Now we call it Turkey. And those Christians living in those towns lived in circumstances that were at the same time very different from ours. And also not really unlike ours so much at all. Some of those Christian communities were suffering communities. They were afflicted and persecuted and hurting. And some of the people in those communities were that way. And some of those communities were not suffering at all. They were perfectly comfortable and honestly, kind of complacent in their faith, kind of falling asleep on faithfulness to the Lord. And some of them were kind of halfway in the middle, and they just they struggled in an ongoing way with the temptation to compromise. Sometimes I say to assimilate, to assimilate or be compromised from their allegiance to Jesus and their values to the way of Jesus, and instead pledge more allegiance or compromise with the values and the way of their world. And the word of Jesus to those people who were suffering, those suffering communities, was, I'm alive. I've triumphed over evil, and I'm here with you. I walk among you. I've got you. Hold on. In your suffering, in your pain, hold on. I've got you. It's going to be okay. And to those communities and those people who had kind of fallen asleep on the Lord, who were com comfortable and complacent and compromised, his word was, wake up. Wake up, man, and turn. Repent and turn back to me. And he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. So open up the door. And if you, whoever opens the door to me, I'll come in and dine with them and they with me. We just did that, didn't we? Didn't we just sit down at the table of God or walk through the table of God? And we dine with the Lord and he with us. It's not too late. Open the door to me. And I kind of think the subtext is before I have to kick it down. <laughs> it's not too late. Turn now back to me. And we've been learning to hear those words addressed to ourselves in our suffering, a word of encouragement and hope. And in our compromise and in our sleepiness, a word that calls us back to faithfulness. And in the midst of all those different kind of circumstances, today we are jumping forward about halfway or a little past halfway into the letter or book of Revelation. And what Revelation is revealing to us today is some truth about the, the conflict in our world. The cosmic conflict between good and evil. The cosmic conflict between God and Satan. And what that has to do with us. What our role and that conflict might be. To get ourselves ready to read that, let me start by asking you a question. Here's my question. Have you ever read, heard, or watched a story about a dragon? Any dragon stories, cartoons, novels? I got pictures here. How about a cartoon dragon? That dragon on the left doesn't look so scary, right? That dragon over there? 
The cartoon on the right, raise your hand and tell the truth. Anybody play Super Mario Brothers in your whole life, have you? I, I did. Mostly when I was a kid, a little bit also now. When I was a kid, the dragon didn't have a name, I don't think. Nowadays, the dragon's name is Bowser, right? And Mario has to go conquer the dragon. Or here's an ugly, scary picture of a dragon. This dragon is Smog the Terrible, right? Smog is the dragon in the Hobbit stories or in the Hobbit books and in the Hobbit movies. And the Hobbit, the little furry guy named Bilbo, he has to go into the mountain and face the dragon. These stories work in every generation. They've been told forever and ever. And I think it's because they resonate with our sense that we are engaged in serious conflict in our lives. That we, too, are facing dragons. Now, just in case anybody doesn't get me, maybe especially kids who are with us today, I don't actually believe in dragons, okay? (laughs) There are no fire-breathing, scary, wing-flapping monsters that are going to attack us. I'm talking about a different kind of dragon that we face. I I have a friend who is recently in remission from cancer. In about the last 12 months, she was in a pretty hard battle against some cancer in her body. And she and her support system, when they talked about what they were praying for and what kind of chemotherapy she was getting and what they were fighting against, they, they called cancer the dragon. <laughs> How's the dragon doing in your body today? Are we fighting the dragon? Are you winning against the dragon today? Some of you may be facing that kind of dragon. I mean, serious physical health concerns, pain, suffering, sickness, disease in your life. And that can feel like fire breathing down the back of your neck, right? Some of you may also be engaged in fighting some spiritual dragons. Are any of, any of you have to fight the dragons of temptation to sinful attitudes and actions in your lives? Any of you fight the, any of you fight the dragon of greed, right? Do you, ever, do you ever think like, man, I just, I need more stuff to make me happy. Anybody in the room ever think that if I just had more toys, then I'd be happier? Anybody ever think that? Because I do. I fight that dragon. I think if I could just get more stuff, if we could just get more stuff for ourselves, that's what would make life good. And this temptation is so strong. Instead of learning to follow the values and the teaching of Jesus who would give us and teach us a, a generous spirit, a spirit of generosity and a generosity of practice that we would also share with others. That's a temptation. It's a dragon that thinks real strong in our culture and in our families and in our lives. Any of you ever face the dragon of like anger and bitterness in your relationships? You ever, like somebody does something wrong to you, you feel slighted or wrong, and man, your reaction is like come right against that. You're just going to fight that. You're angry. Maybe there's even some rage inside. It can be a hard dragon, right? And it's hard to learn to practice the, the truthful and costly practice of Christian reconciliation and forgiveness. Sometimes these dragons can be hard to slay. Sometimes we'll feel like we're fighting dragons individually. They're a threat to us personally. Sometimes we'll feel like they are a threat to other people that we love. And that's heartbreaking and that's scary. And sometimes it feels like the dragons are not just facing us or threatening us as individuals, but as communities, right? As, as neighborhoods, as cities, as maybe as a human community around the globe. I think for a long time, a, a dragon that has threatened human community is, is the dragon of racism, and inter-ethnic and international hostility and, and suspicion and, and hatred. And it's caused violence and conflict within humans for a long, long time. That's a fire-breathing dragon that's corrosive and destructive to human community. I think about broken families and what that does to us. And even as we're caught up in it and all the pain that's involved in that, it's really painful. And it's painful to the next generation. A lot of us are connected to that in some way. And there's always grace and healing for that in Jesus Christ. At the same time that we realize it's, it's fire against us. And I think about like cycles of generational poverty, cyclical poverty, and how that kind of enslaves us and keeps us captive. And it doesn't allow us to live freely in relationship with God, but binds us up. 
We face dragons, I think, that threaten us not only individually, but also in our communities. And I think it's just a fact that within a Christian community like this one or many others, different ones of us are, will see some dragons more clearly and will be sensitive to it, and they may be the ones that we're called to fight, but together we see all these different things. And what we're going to see as we read the letter of Revelation today, the book of Revelation today, is that Revelation reveals to us that there is an enemy, there is a conflict, and it uses the image of a dragon to symbolize, to symbolize the enemy of God's people, the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. So turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 12. I mean, we've got, if you don't have a Bible with you right now, you, if you do have a Bible, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, you want to borrow one, our ushers are going to come up the side aisles right now, and they'll have a stack of Bibles, and you can borrow one during the service today and just put it on the shelf in the back of the room after worship today. As you're getting a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 12, and if you're using one of our Quest Bibles here in our worship venue, you can see on the slide here, it's going to be on page 1829, if that makes it a little bit easier to find. I'm going to read Revelation chapter 12. While you are turning there, I want to tell you one of the things we're going to learn today. I have three things that I want you to learn today. I don't always have three points. Life doesn't always work in three points. But today, there are three things that I really want you to learn from this passage. And the, the first one is simply this. There really is an enemy. There really is an enemy. That's the first point. And you can put that reference slide back up. Thank you back there. Here, we're going to read Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5 together. This is what John said that he saw. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. What does that look like? With, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, we will see in some verses later on, some of these verses we're going to skip for time today, but that woman, she stands for the entire people of God. She's a symbol of us, of the people of God. And even the 12 stars on her head stand for kind of the Old Testament 12 tribes of Israel. She stands for the people of God, and she's about to give birth to a child. We'll hear about that in a second. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads. Man, this is uglier than smog, right? seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. And it its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them down to earth. Now pause there for a second. This is one of the ways that we know that this kind of, these kinds of images in Revelation, this kind of literature, is meant to be read symbolically. Right? If you think about this totally literally, I don't know how many stars there actually are in the universe, but one-third of them will not fit on planet Earth, right? One of them will not fit on planet Earth. It's too big, right? What this is meant to describe to us is the, the terrible and destructive power of the dragon, of the enemy, extending, and I think this is important, extending even into the brokenness or disturbing the good order of God's natural world, right? Okay, so let's keep reading here. Uh, middle of verse 4, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, very graphic image, so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And that, that child, that's meant to stand for Jesus. That's the Lord, the rescuer, the savior. In fact, this, uh, this line about ruling the nations with an iron scepter, that's an allusion to an Old Testament psalm that looked forward to the coming of the savior in the future, who has now come, and that's Jesus. Okay, let's just talk about this for a second before we even move on. The first thing that's being revealed to us in this vision is simply this, that there really is an enemy. Right? Now, I think this is important for us to understand but there are two really common ways to misunderstand it. Huh? 
And the first one, honestly, is really just to disbelieve it entirely. You're like, I can't believe in that stuff. I mean, there's no hocus pocus, whatever, nonsense, dragon, spirits, Satan, devil. That's not real. I can't see that. I can't measure that. No way. On the other hand, there's this opposite misunderstanding or failure to believe this, which is thinking that we see the devil behind every doorpost, right? That the, the devil's behind is a direct attack behind every bad thing that happens in our lives. And I think sometimes that sounds so crazy that, that clear-minded people are like, well, if that's what you think, I can't believe that. That's crazy. Let me tell you a story. A, a good friend of mine, a guy, a good Christian guy, who has been a mentor to me over the years sometimes, he was telling me a story just very recently, actually, about a time when he was a younger man, he was a newlywed, and he had a bad cold. He was all stuffed up, and his nose is running, and all the gross stuff that goes along with that, right? And he's all stuffed up, and he's sick, and he runs into his mother-in-law, okay? The mother of his wife, someone he's going to have to see over and over again, okay? He runs into his mother-in-law, and she comes up to him, and she's one of the people who makes that second mistake where she sees the devil behind every doorpost, right? And she says, come here, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to cast the demon of that cold right out of you, right? And he says to her, I think it's a virus, and she says to him, I don't receive your lack of faith. And so he says, come here, I'm going to blow my nose and wipe it on you and see if you receive that. That's his mother-in-law. My mother-in-law was in the last service where I was telling that story. <laughs> He's dumber or braver than I am, one or maybe both, right? Anyway, he tells his wife that later on, and she says, you're going to have to apologize for my to my mother for that, you know, right? So that wasn't the right thing to do. But I think he was right. I think it was a virus. And believing that there really is an enemy doesn't mean that we have to disbelieve in viruses and material causes and all that sort of thing, right? If, if we do, I think we'll make some significant mistakes in life. If we do, we'll never investigate and explore the kinds of medicines and therapies that can cure diseases and relieve human suffering, as I believe wholeheartedly that God wants us to do. Or similarly, if we believe that every time our friend is angry with us, that that's some sort of demonic possession or they are misled by the demon of anger, then we're never going to investigate and explore what it was that we did wrong that made them mad in the first place, for which we probably now ought to apologize and ask for forgiveness. Or maybe never even seek to understand kind of maybe some of the deeper wounds that have happened from past wrongdoings and that can help heal us in our relationships. And I think if we do those things, if we, if we fail to do those things, that's just naive and irresponsible. On the other hand, I don't think that means that we need to doubt or disbelieve that in the natural world, that in addition to understanding physical cause and effect, that we live in a fallen world, that we live in a broken world, that we live in a place where the fruits of sin are evident, not only like in our minds or our choices, but also in the, in the physical world. In other words, to use some biblical imagery, we don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. We live in a place where sin affects God's world, even our bodies. And I think it also means that in our relationships, that in addition to frank and rational conversation and analysis, which is important for understanding our own hearts and our own relationships, that in addition to those helpful and fruitful things, that we can also experience genuine healing by the empowering presence of God's own spirit in our lives and in our hearts and our relationships. Okay, so the first point is merely this, there really is an enemy, right? But I got to say something else after that, because we could get pretty scared right now. The second thing that I need you to know is that our enemy is a beaten enemy, all right? Our enemy is a beaten enemy. I don't know if any of the kids who are with us today, I'm talking about fighting dragons. That can sound really frightening. I don't want you to be scared. There is nothing to be scared of. In fact, this is something I want you to take away today. We have no reason to be scared 
even when it's scary. <laughs> There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of, even when it looks like there are things to be afraid of, right? Let, let's read this next passage together. This is still Revelation 12, page 1829 in your Quest Bibles. You can just stay right there. We're not really turning the page today, maybe one page later. And we're going to read Revelation 12, 7 through 12. This is what John said he saw. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he, the dragon, wasn't strong enough. Praise God, right? That's great news. <laughs> and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. He was defeated in heaven, but now he's on earth. <laughs> then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They have triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe or warning to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. And this line's important. Why is the devil filled with fury? Because he knows that his time is short. All right? Because he knows that he is a beaten enemy. The devil makes war against the people of God. He is furious. He rages. Not because he is invincible, but because he is vulnerable. Not because he is winning, but because he is losing. Because he is losing ground. And he will be defeated, finally, as we will see in coming weeks in this series. Here's how I like to describe this sometimes. I like to describe this in terms of World War II history. And if you know your World War II history, then don't judge me when I get this wrong, okay? <laughs> this is sort of like when the Allied powers, the U.S.-led Allied forces, invaded Normandy on D-Day in 1944, right? In retrospect, we know that from that moment on, the turning point had been turned. The Nazis and the Axis powers and everybody under the leadership of Hitler, they were, there, they were going to be defeated. That's how this was going to happen, right? There was going to be a victory in Europe day. Now, if you were still a soldier on the front lines having to fight your way across Europe, people were still shooting at you, right? And that could legitimately feel scary. However, in retrospect, we know that the victory was coming, right? There was going to be a VE day, a victory in Europe day, and not to mention victory in the Pacific Theater also. The only thing that we didn't know about VE day at that point was what to call it and when it was going to happen, right? And I think that is still true. I think that's true in a similar way for the spiritual conflict that we're in against the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That there is victory. The final victory of God over Satan has already, the victory blow has been struck. The victory is assured. The only thing we don't know about it is the date. Our enemy is a beaten enemy. And when we are marching across the battlefields of our lives and the enemy is still shooting at us, I think the word of the Lord Jesus to us is the word that he spoke to the suffering Christians in the first place at the beginning of Revelation, which is, I have beaten this enemy and I know it's scary right now. I know it looks scary, but hold on. I've got you, and it's going to be okay in the end. Our enemy is a beaten enemy. Okay, here's the third thing that we're going to learn today. The third thing is this. The enemy has soldiers. The third thing, the enemy has soldiers. Now, one of the most famous characters in the book of Revelation is the beast, right? 
the beast. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13, which we're not going to read all of right now, but you may read it in your growth groups or in some of your individual daily readings, Revelation chapter 13 describes not only the beast, but actually there are two. There's one beast out of the sea and one beast out of the lamb, uh, land. And one of the things that's striking about these descriptions, John's descriptions of his vision of the beast, is how much they look like Roman emperors. Right? John describes the beast in terms of looking like multiple animals at the same time. The beast looks like a leopard and looks like a bear and looks like a lion all at the same time, which is stock imagery from ancient Jewish and Jewish Christian literature that described the enemies of the people of God, especially the Roman emperors. They used those animals to stand for them. John says the beast received a mortal wound, but then there were reports that he was alive again, which sounds an awful like the history of Nero Caesar, who, for whom the people heard reports of his suicide, and then reports that he was alive again, that his mortal wound had been healed. And then there's this one. Right at the end of Revelation 13 is what I think might be the most famous thing in Revelation. It was the first thing I ever think I can remember about Revelation. The number, 666, right? And John says that in Revelation 13, the number of the beast, let those who understand, let me, let me hear this and understand, it's the number of a man, it's 666. Well, that clears it all up, doesn't it? Everybody knows what that means? Not us. We don't, right? That was clear to John's first readers, though. In ancient languages, numbers and letters were the same thing. So in modern languages, like in English, we have ABC and 123, and those are two separate sets of symbols, right? You don't do your math with ABCs. You do them with 123s. But in, but in ancient Roman language, other ancient languages, Hebrew and Greek, they used letters and numbers with the same syllables. So ABC was also 123. Like Roman numerals. Any of you ever seen Roman numerals anywhere? Like X is 10, V is 5, C is 100, M is 1,000, that kind of stuff. All right, so you could do this. And archaeologists have uncovered an ancient piece of graffiti, for real. This is like graffiti people spray with spray cans on bridge overpasses now. I mean, not any of you would never do that, right? But spray on overpasses, right? Somebody had an ancient graffiti, not with an aerosol spray can, right, from the first century. And the person wrote, I love her whose number is 514. It's so romantic. It's so sweet, right? Math is always romantic. That's what I want you to take home today, right? Now, the, the way this works is that you can take the number and back calculate to the letters that spell out the name, and you find out that her real name is Lisa or something like that. It's not 514, okay? Now, when John says the number of the beast is 666, you know what adds up to 666? Nero Caesar adds up to 666. Now, whether the entire history of the beast is really wrapped up in this one guy or not is really not defined for us here. But we can know that the enemy has soldiers, that the enemy conscripts or calls, or people volunteer for the service of the enemy as human beings, and they do the bidding of the dragon. And they serve the agenda, they pledge allegiance to the dragon and to the agenda of evil. And when people find themselves in service of evil, I think we become beastly, right? We become less human. We become less than the image of God in which we are created and live for less than the human community that God made us for. Now, I think this requires real discernment. This requires real caution, right? Because on the one hand, John says to us, this vision says to us that the enemy has soldiers. And where people, and maybe especially powerful people, are serving the agenda of the dragon and are putting into practice values that are corrosive and destructive to the flourishing of human beings in the world, what are those of us who serve God supposed to do but resist it, right? Stand against it. Say, not here. We don't want to do that. Work for an alternative. 
And I think we're called to resist evil. At the same time, I think it's important for us to remember, to realize, to see that the soldiers are not themselves the dragon. They are not themselves the enemy, right? In fact, there's another verse in the letter of Ephesians, another book in the New Testament, that says we battle not against flesh and blood. Our, our battle, our fight is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against human beings, but against the powers of darkness in the heavenly realms. And I think we can take our example from those early Christian communities, these people who first received this letter, none of them put together a plot for violent overthrow of the Caesars, of the government. We have no evidence of any plots for assassination or murder attempts or exterminate those wicked people. Instead, all the evidence that we have indicates to us that they were followers of Jesus, that they loved their enemies and prayed for those who persecuted them, that they lived by the ridiculous and crazy countercultural values of this one that they had learned to call Lord, the lamb who was slain and was raised again from the dead. I think this calls for real discernment. In fact, let me kind of turn toward the end here and get real practical and ask you this question. What is our role then in this conflict? We aren't God, we aren't the dragon, we're kind of caught in the middle somehow. What is our role in this conflict? Well, I've got a few images that I want to give you for this, but first, let me just give you a, a theme verse, a key verse, that John himself gives us from God for making this discernment. Right in the middle of Revelation 13, verse 10, this is what John says. He's in the middle of describing the beasts, and he says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people, both those things. Let me try to explain it this way. I think in this great cosmic battle, Sometimes, and in some ways, the role that we play in this battle is the role of POWs, prisoners of war, or maybe civilian casualties. Sometimes we feel the heat of the dragon. We feel that fiery breath, and we are in a place of affliction. We're in a place of suffering. We're in a place of pain or rejection. And I think that the word of the Lord to us and if it's not us at this moment, it's probably Christian brothers and sisters, either within our community or within the giant community of believers around the world. I think the word of the Lord to us is what, he's, what he already said to the suffering Christians at the beginning of this letter, which is, hold on, <laughs> patient, endurance. I'm alive. I have triumphed over the dragon. Hold on. I've got you. It's going to be okay. And Jesus offers us a word of hope and power and comfort. Sometimes the reality is that we are prisoners of war and civilian casualties. But sometimes, and in some ways, frankly and unfortunately, we also play the role of enemy combatants, don't we? Sometimes I think we make choices or live according to values that are more consistent with the agenda of the dragon than they are consistent with the agenda of God. I've done that. I do that. I bet you've done that. And what's the word of the Lord to us in those situations, in those circumstances? Again, it's the same word that we heard the Lord speak to the complacent of the compromised churches at the beginning. The word is wake up, turn, or the religious word for turn is repent, come back to me. I stand at the door and knock, and it is not too late. Open the door, and I will come in and dine with you and you with me. Turn back to me. Sometimes we have that first role, POWs, civilian casualties. Sometimes I think we're more like enemy combatants. But whatever role we find ourselves in, I think we are all called to one more role. I think we are all called to be freedom fighters. We are all called to be freedom fighters on the side of the lamb against the tyranny of the dragon 
in this world. We are called to fight with the lamb, and this part's really important, in the way of the lamb. Not just in whatever way we might imagine, but in faithfulness and fidelity to Jesus. How are we freedom fighters? I think we are freedom fighters against the dragon and with the lamb every time we walk his way. Every time by our actions we choose compassion for the hurting instead of brokenness of relationship and turning a blind eye. Every time we walk in the way of Jesus, I think, we say to the dragon, not here, not today, not this time. Every time that we choose to walk in the way of forgiveness and reconciliation and the hard path of reconciled relationships and healing, instead of working in brokenness and rage and anger and revenge, we say to the dragon, not here, not in this relationship, not today. This turf belongs to Jesus. Every time we choose to look at somebody else with purity and respect instead of an immorality and objectification, we say to the dragon, not in my heart, not today, not here. This, this turf belongs to King Jesus. Every time in our relationships, those of you who are married people, every time you do the hard work of fighting for your marriage against the corrosive and genuinely hard things that function in our culture to weaken and, and work against faithfulness in our relationships, every time you do that, I think you are saying, not here, not this turf. As for us and our house, we will serve the Lord. And we're fighting against the dragon for the freedom of life in God's way. Every time in a hundred different ways and a thousand different ways that apply to all of your lives, Every time you hear the voice of Jesus says, come, follow me, and you learn and choose to walk in the way of selfless and sacrificial love and put others ahead of yourself instead of yourself ahead of others, I think every time in that moment you pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God and of the Lamb who has conquered, and we push back against the dragon. All right, the, the vision that God gave John, that John shared with ancient Christians and us alike, says there is an enemy there really is a battle, there really is an enemy, but that enemy has been defeated against all expectations. The lamb beat the dragon, right? And that, that word offers us hope. That is a word of hope and a word of power to us. And we are invited, and I invite you, to live in the hope and the power of the lamb who was slain and has conquered. Amen? Amen. Hey, stand up. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are good. Your ways are good. And we worship you for your mercy, for your compassion, for your justice, for your patience with us. And we pray for your mercy and your forgiveness in our lives. We know that you stand at the door and knock. And in this moment, we open it to you and say, come in and lead in our lives. And where we are hurting and where our brothers and sisters are hurting and where our community is hurting, we pray for your healing and we pray for your victory. We thank you for your victory over the dragon and we pray, would your will be done here on earth in our lives now as it is in heaven. Lead us on and we want to follow you. We worship you for your victory and pray for it in our lives and in your world. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus.